Kemen, more like lemon. Hey, got him. <laughs> and what life gives you lemons. Make war. Welcome to Hobbit Hoopla. Hoopla! The unofficial podcast of Second Breakfast. I'm here with my good buddies to talk about The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, Episode 5, Partings. Joining me, as always, is our resident lore master, Andrew Smith. Andy Smith here, a connoisseur of many nerdy things, DC, Marvel, Star Wars. I'm almost done with the Sandman, and I'll give you a review next episode. <laughs> so tune in next week for Andy's review of the Sandman. Find me at Darth A. Smithius on Twitter. We are also joined by our resident fantasy expert, Chris Pio. Hey guys, Chris here, back for another excellent episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us at Linktree. Uh, that's linktr.ee forward slash Hobbit Hoopla for all of our relevant links. But if you're looking to get in contact or engage with us, find us on Twitter or Instagram. Happy to be back. Really excited to talk about this particular episode. Thanks for having us on. And joining us this week, we have an elf lugging a giant stone table all the way to Kaza Doom. Jake Laxer. <laughs> this shit's heavy as hell. Thanks, Duran. But uh, hey, Jake Laxer here, lover of all things TV and movies. I'm stateside. I get to hang with the boys. I get to hang with the crew, the fellowship. So this will be fun for the next few weeks until uh, we finish this out. Andor just started. Dope series. Looking forward to the next nine episodes of that. And twerking is now canon in the Marvel Universe. Welcome back to the States, Jake. Welcome to joining the Hoopla Croopla in person. Thank you all for joining us this week once again to the Hobbit Hoopla podcast. We appreciate everybody who tunes in every week. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, give us some five-star ratings. And if you're looking for us on the social medias, Chris, where can they find us? Yes, yeah, so you can find us. All of our relevant links are going to be on Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Hobbit Hoopla. But if you're looking to engage with us, drop us your crazy theories or give us your hottest takes. Find us on Twitter or Instagram at Hobbit Hoopla cross-platform. We're definitely looking to uh, talk about theories and uh, hear what you have to say. Without any further ado, let's dive on in to episode five of The Rings of Power. Starting with my hot take, my theory for the episode is that we witnessed Chris's favorite television scene of all time in this episode. Mm. The scene is... Do you want me to guess? I'll tell you what it is, because it is filled to the brim with map transitions. (laughs) As Poppy is singing her song and we just get back to back to back map transitions. Yes! Call to me, call to me. It was beautiful and the first thing i thought of was music is such an important part of the original trilogy and this universe as a whole but more than that song is an important piece of it there's wonderful singing throughout the original trilogy and and sometimes it's ethereal background noise sometimes it's it's more up front and center sometimes it's uh diegetic you know when you can actually hear the music the characters in the movie can hear that music and this was so cool because not only did we get map transitions yes but we also got that shift from the diegetic music where Poppy was actually singing into a full-on performance. You could tell that the quality changed and the montage scene was just absolutely beautiful. Song is such an important part of the original trilogy, so I'm glad we're finally getting some of that here in The Rings of Power. Yes, uh, you, you, you might be onto something, although I've got a couple other scenes from this episode that I want to talk about. We do finally get to see the Harfoots. After missing the Harfoots last episode, we get a little bit more Harfoot action mm, and Harfoot a little bit action. more Stranger action. 
as he mm, saves them from the wolves. Yeah, what were those guys? They look cool. Half boar, half wolf. Oh, that's that's exactly what I wrote down. I said, these are really strange, strange creatures here. Wolves, boars. They were wolves. <laughs> are they boars? Who knows? He did a great a little thunderclap move to push them all back. That was pretty cool. It allowed evil to traverse his forearm, which led us to our frostbite healing. Yeah, so he does He does get a little injured and then has to heal himself in that pool of water, which he... I mean, we already knew that he was magic, but we get to see a little bit more of his magic capabilities, and he scares Nori a little bit, hurts her with the ice. We get a, a great scene between Nori and the stranger. The stranger is concerned about who he is and if he is peril. That was a beautiful scene between the two of them. I think it's important to note that it's the first scene, the very first opening scene of this mm-hmm. episode, where we didn't get any of them last episode. He remembers the fireflies and how he was Mm -hmm. a peril to those fireflies. So he's kind of putting two and two together. But the way that they're talking, the way that he's kind of murmuring in in common speech, it just kind of seems like they've been talking for a while. So I think they used that no Harfoots last episode to push other stories. But at the same time, we understand that they're just on the migration path. Well, it's also very interesting because Nori starts telling us about what what does the migration really include? Like, what are the different areas that they're going through? What do they have to achieve to get to their end goal? It's based on seasons as well. So it's a multi-season migration. She mentions into the winter, then into the spring, and then finally they'll meet their destination in mid-year. This is an intense migration, especially for a family that Largo is clearly not doing well with his feet. Poor guy. We already heard about all these different harfoots uh dying in the last migrations they're really showing that these harfoots they're pretty intense they may be small but they're they're doing a lot here yeah they're survivors <laughs> they certainly try to be survivors <laughs> yeah <laughs> except for the bees bees you transition into the bog and you can already see like half of their food is like behind them on the side gotta lighten the load so they can make their way we do see that they're they're making their way forward and now i think we gotta dive back into our speculation about who the stranger is the last scene with the stranger in this episode after he unfortunately injures nori a little bit with the ice magic the last shot we see is him staring her down as she runs away and there's like a little bit of confidence in his eyes and i'm not sure if it's evil confidence he's starting to understand who he is a little bit so now who do we think he is i know who you think he is (laughs) can we start can we start there possibly sauron so we saw that highlight into or real if you will when he had a mental connection to nori Uh, before she launched across the forest. I was trying to slow that down frame by frame to sort of see exactly what was going on there, but it seemed like there were only visuals that we had seen up till this point. You know, him laying in the cold fire, him reaching out to Nori. But I do think, considering the amount of flame that we visualized in that one particular scene, I do think that was definitely leaning more toward the evil side of the spectrum. So I'm tracking, Jim. I I see what you got going on here, but... It makes me feel bad considering the fact that, you know, finally the colony has found some degree of acceptance for him. And then now Nori is terrified as shit. <laughs> so it's like, oh, we made so much progress. Oh, whoopsies. I'm actually friends with Saruman. My bad. One of the scenes right before we cut to one of the Harfoot scenes is the scene with Muriel and her father. And he, she's kind of asking for the blessing to, to go on this mission and asking you for advice. Is this the right thing to do? He says, don't go to Middle Earth. All that awaits you there, darkness. Great scene all in itself. But right after that, it cuts to the stranger. And I don't know if that's foreshadowing. I don't know if it's a mislead. But it was an important cut. That's a good edit catch there. 
Well, well done, Chris. I actually really like that. Yeah, that's that's definitely, I think, some to some degree of foreshadowing. Sauron was one theory. Sauron, maybe another theory. I mean, we have a million theories, but Andy, who are you thinking the stranger is? It actually changed during this episode. So really initially, especially during this opening scene with the peril scene where he's kind of progressing, he's starting to talk a little bit more. I've been on the Gandalf train for a few episodes here, but more and more, you know, they show the Morgoth worshippers at his like site yeah. where his meteor landed. He keeps speaking in black speech, which seems to point more towards a Sauron type figure. I don't think he's Sauron, but I'm actually turning away from the Gandalf theory. I'm not sure at this point. I, I, I think this might be a new character like a blue wizard. Or maybe Saruman. He seemed evil in that last yeah. shot. I don't know if you, any of you picked up on this, but almost his beard got a little bit less wispy. Like, just visually, he's changing as a character. Like Saruman's beard? Mm, could be. I noticed those changes to Andrew, and, and I gotta say, I think my Saruman theory is the most intact theory of our theories right now. Not to say that other people haven't shared that sentiment, but I think we're definitely off to a hot start with some of the changes. As cool as the magic scene was, and as important as that deus ex machina stranger moment was, I think the most important scene was indeed that short, God, 45-second clip of revisiting the crash site with those strangers, and we yeah. know absolutely nothing about them. We got nothing more. I do want to point out that even without the, the magic coming from the stranger, I still think this is more important because who are they? Sure, but at the same time, why were they so late? If they're a part of this same order, why did they show up days after the, that these Harfoots already ran into them and have whisked them off, whisked the stranger off to... A uh, completely different place, who knows where. So that's my biggest question is why are they late? Who are they, certainly, but are they in charge of this? Did they know it was coming and they miss it? We're going to learn more, but it doesn't look like they're very on top of things so far. So we have three characters there. We have three actors. We have Edith Poor, Kaylee Copé, and Bertie Sisson, and they are the Nobad, the Ascetic, and the Dweller. That's all we are informed of in terms of background information regarding these three characters. Sauron? <laughs> Sauron? Could they be Sauron? But these might be one of the, the Blue Wizard, the trio of the Blue Wizards trying to ascertain and learn about as much as they can about this situation that's unfolding, because obviously the entire region is, is now interested in this Starfall event. I don't know. Could be, could be interesting to see what these beings are. Really, the how I took it was these are worshippers of Morgoth or maybe Sauron. If you saw on one of their shields, there was a symbol of stars, very similar to the symbols that the stranger has been mapping out. Maybe they're priest-like figures that are maybe waiting for the coming of, of Sauron. Yeah, that could definitely be it. They're waiting for Sauron. They're waiting to maybe join his army when he finally does make his return to Middle-earth. And I wonder how they are going to feel about Adar, who is currently building up this army of orcs, as we see. And some of the men who have taken shelter in the Watchtower actually abandon their fellow men to go pledge their fealty to Adar. So I wonder if we'll get some interaction between these new priest people and Adar as Waldrig Frickin and Waldrig. a few of the other men meet up with Adar and his orcs. Waldrig and Rowan the soft belly bitch. <laughs> That's what we're calling him now. Okay, give some respect to the dead. Come on. Um, hold on. He straight up abandoned Theo in the village when he was going to collect food from the tavern. True. Okay, Rowan hasn't been great. Rowan hasn't been great, but he's been waiting <laughs> for his king, Hallbrand. You know, he said our king is going to return. 
nope, nope. The king did not return, and, and not yet. Stuck and him. we had another instance of one of our many theories being confirmed as both correct and incorrect, because some of us thought that Adar was Sauron, and some of us thought that Adar was not Sauron. Chris, I forget where exactly you landed on this debate. What are your thoughts on the new revelations about Adar? I was, uh, again, not to toot my own horn too much this episode, but I was correct on this. I guess that he was somewhat new. And that might not still be technically correct, of course, once we confirm who the character actually is, but I did say he was not Sauron. I was excited for them to introduce a new character, a new evil, you know, for one season, three seasons, all the seasons, who knows, but I was excited for them to introduce someone new, and I did not think this was Sauron. And I think he was introduced incredibly well, this being, I guess, what the third episode we've seen him. Now we see him with the troops. His plans are starting to get enacted. He tells the first orc, who is, I guess, the leader of, of the army, soon the light will be gone. That's a big question. Right. They're trying to black out the sky, presumably. Is that what you took from that? I, that's definitely what I took from the scene when he ha had the orc extend his arm out into the sunlight and he began to burn. Um, I forget the exact quote that they use, but it definitely indicated that darkness will be falling over the light in the near future. Darkness will be falling future. as soon as Adar can get his hand on that hilt, which Theo still has. He showed Arandir the hilt and they uncovered this, not a temple. Almost a shrine. Uh, yes, a shrine. A shrine to Sauron in the watchtower, depicting this same sword with this hilt stabbing through the body of a man. Yeah, so my whole question with that, right? The watchtower has been guarded by the elves for the past 80 years, and they never thought to get rid of something that's like, I don't know, anarchistic? Something that could really lead, to the, lead the people down a road that they're completely vulnerable to? Yeah, just keeping an altar to Sauron the whole time. It just time. seemed kind of ridiculous to me. Let's just, let's just let the vines cover this horrible insignia, you know, that's reminiscent of our horrible past however many years with Morgoth. The vines will cover it. It'll be fine. Look, man, they, they banned alcohol in the United States for a long time, and they, they fought to get it back quickly. You can't just take it away from people. If you cover up those stones, they're just going to want to go looking for those stones. Sure, but like... Vines? It probably wasn't even overgrown by the time they should, like, come on. By the way, they took down the vines, like, very quickly. It's like, oh, Very it, it quickly, yes! It was like, it, it like, took them, the vines down. It's like they've been growing there for, like, three months. They didn't even try to hide it. It's like the kudzu in the backyard for, like, three months. But, you know, again, it's Rings of Power. I'll allow it, because I love the show. I love, I love what they're bringing to the table, so. Jamie, I have a question for you. So... You know, we have the hilt, we have this shrine. Presumably, if we connect the hilt to the to the shrine, the sun is going to be blocked out in some way. How is that going to take place? What magic is associated here? Is this going to start Mountain Doom and shift the seas and maybe create the Great Wave? Maybe we're connecting all these Ooh, things everything's to this connected. one pivotal moment. Yeah, maybe. I was thinking it was going to be something on a smaller scale of just like starting to create a cloud of darkness over the Southlands the same way that we saw over Mordor in The Lord of the Rings. I was thinking it was going to be something like that. more localized, but who knows? Maybe it is a world-changing event when this key, as Arndir calls it, gets into the hands of Adar. I do have a question about sort of the end of this episode with Arondir and Bronwyn when they're discussing their last chance to save the people's lives. They're having this private conversation and Bronwyn says there's only one other way that we can get out of this. And then it cuts to them going to the center of town 
yeah. in the center of this little watchtower. And everyone. they start having this fight where now Bronwyn <laughs> is saying that they should surrender and Arondir is the one who is supporting the strength of men. I think what we all believe is that this is an act that they're putting together to get the men to rise mm. up and, and follow behind Arondir and trust the elf so that they can work together as men and elf mm. to, to fight the incoming orcs. Are we all on the same page that we think that was an Very act? Possibly. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to take it. No. Yeah, I, like, I like that. I was not on that page, and I'm still not. Even though you did put the idea in my head, to be honest, I thought it was poor staging. I thought if it turns out to be a staging choice, a directorial, just, you know, offhand choice, I was going to say it could easily have been the worst scene, worst planned scene, worst written scene that we've seen in all five episodes so far. I thought if that was not an act, but I'm hopefuling that you can save that scene for me. If that was not an act, it stood out to me as, as a sore thumb. It's the Achilles heel of the show so far. That little scene was just so strange how they're having this private conversation about this very important thing that was just revealed. Also, the Theo reveal to Arondir was not even that well-earned because, truthfully, they kind of hated each other for a while. At least that's what we got from the first episode. Yep. So that threw me yeah. off for a little. I'm hoping you're right, Jamie, because I, I, that scene was so silly. They're having this very important private conversation. She's just this proxy leader for the people somehow even though half the people hate her and then they just walk into the middle of town having this open obtuse conversation about things that are much beyond them i hope that it was a set you mentioned proxy leader what is her credibility to be a leader of these people she killed an orc okay i get that that's dope so she has some you know degree of ability to you know protect the people but outside of that you know she wears like this nice garb that stands out and of itself with the other townsfolk what is her credibility she's the healer of the town she didn't have the role of like a leader but as the healer of a town you get to know every single person in the town and they have a level of respect for you as you help children old people probably helping animals as well so she has some baseline level of respect. And then since she was the one who initially got these people to leave town and go to the Watchtower, then just kind of being like the first person to save the town maybe gives her a little bit more respect around it, everybody. But I mean, you're right. She she is not a leader. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. It's also a small community too, right, Jake? Right. It is a small community. But remember, the Watchtower now has people from all across the Southlands. It's not just, you know, her specific town. I guess maybe her relationship to Arondir and her proximity to that character gives her also some credibility and the fact that Waldreg is also very outspoken, but it's just something that was kind of floating in the back of my mind in terms of, you know, I, I, I want her to be validated. We do see that she has been kind of a proxy leader, but not a very good one, as half the people abandon them and pledge fealty to Adar and are now currently marching on the Watchtower. The orcs and presumably the men are marching with them to attack the Watchtower as the last scene we see from the Southlands is they look up to the Watchtower and hear the ringing of the bell and the sound of drums. And the beacons are lit. The beacons lit. are lit. That's my takeaway from this episode from In the Southlands. The beacons are lit. Someone's going to come. Is it going to be the Numenorians that get there in time? I don't think that they're, they're going to have enough time to get there. There's got to be some other force in my mind that's going to come and save these people. We get that last shot where it pans up to the entirety of the Watchtower. That looked very reminiscent of the Sauron's Tower. The Southlands does get turned into Mordor, as we've been discussing. 
Do we think that that could possibly be the Eye of Sauron? I think he's going to make his own tower. It is absolutely not the Tower of Barad-dûr. But I like the idea, Jake. Great. The architecture is similar. It can't be Barad-dûr because Aarian has to be the one to build it. <laughs> and she hasn't yeah. turned evil yet. There was a severe lack of Aarian in this episode. But I, I will say one very cool scene was the scene with Kemen. Sidebar, Kemen's kind of a weak character for me right now. I'm not sure if he's going to stick around, but... What are your opinions on Kemen? I, I think he's maybe... Kemen sucks, dude. Yeah, I, I think he's maybe the, the least interesting character in the whole series. It... I think Kemen and Isildur are my least two favorite characters in this series And Isildur. So oh, Isildur. And Isildur, yeah. obviously. Can we get a hot take sound effect right there? That's that's hot. Shit. Oh, we do need some hot take sound effects. Do you mean this hot oh take sound? Pause for hot take sound. <laughs> And Andy, you you were almost the happiest person in the world, but they both almost died this episode. Yeah. And then the show would have been perfect for you. <laughs> That's true. I think just as Sildur, we're supposed to not like him. Like he's not he's not a character that you're necessarily rooting for just yet because he's he needs to learn more from Elendil and Elendil tries to do that at the beginning of the episode where there was kind of this teaching moment between Elendil and, and Sildur. He's a part of this noble family that is always able to get back into the the sea guard when he needs to. Once again, all the, his friends always say, oh, Elendil let you back in. But Elendil, as he's talking to Sildur, says, look out at the workers of this isle. Look what they've done. What have you done? You just moved away from what your calling was. I like the, the father-son kind of teaching moment. Once again, the main trope of a, a father and a son is coming back over and over again throughout the series. So we end up with a few different camps within the people of Numenor, whether or not they should go to Middle-earth. And we have lots of debates between Galadriel, Muriel, Hallbrand, Farazhan, determining whether or not they should send these people, these Numenorians, to Middle-earth. And I love Galadriel trying to teach people how to attack orcs. That scene was great. I loved every second of that. Yeah, that was an amazing scene. I loved every Stab, second Stab, twist, of that. gut. Ah! <laughs> Just Galadriel taking down, like, five of these Numenorean warriors at a time. Well, it was such a great scene because, and Jamie, I thought this was the scene you were actually going to pick for me to be my favorite. It still might be. The Harfoots, I had a gripe. They didn't use wheels in the front of their carts. They just lifted <laughs> them. They had wheel technology. Oh, but, no, you're right. So as great as that scene was, I think this scene takes the cake for me. Uh, the choreography. Oh, well phenomenal there's there's nothing that i can add to that great conversation it was just great incredibly well designed but the the important part was that the choreography not only showed us physically what galadriel was capable of but there's also a buildup of tension not only in the situation but the fight itself it started as a one-on-one -on -one battle it started with that one soldier getting frustrated and then the other soldier said enough of this i'm gonna join in but galadriel still handled the situation until she was fighting five guys at a time it was just a really cool scene and it was kind of metaphorical in the way that the scene built up where also tensions are building up with these two camps i'm gonna add one one thing in here real quick she smiled <laughs> we get another slow-mo oh of her God. smiling. I actually, I thought that was so funny. This was validated. I loved it. Yeah. It made sense. The riding on the horse did not. 
this made sense. I loved it. What's different oh, about it? She's enjoying she's her passion. She's allowed to be happy when she gets stabbed, but she's not allowed to be happy when she's riding a horse. That's crazy. <laughs> made no sense. This this is more in parallel with Galadriel's character. I'm not going to dive into all of that. There are two other things about the scene that were more nitpicky to me. One, you know, actually, I loved how Lindiel suggested that whoever stabs her or draws flesh gets promoted to Lieutenant. I don't know what Lieutenant is. Lieutenant. We also noticed that that character, I'm, uh, what is that character's name that stabbed her? Valindiel, I believe. Valindiel. That's yeah. right. He goes to lunge towards her, stabbing to her right, but she gets a cut on her left. I don't know. That was, that was a little thing, nitpick thing that I picked up again. But again, not a big deal in terms of the grand scheme of the show. But I do want to point out one thing about these people seeing an elf and actually getting into combat with an elf. This is not something that happens often in the, the grand scheme of the timeline here. Like this is a warrior princess, thousands of years old, that's fighting just these young, you know, teenage to early 20s fighters from Numenor. Obviously, she's evading every single one of their their blows, kind of teaching them that you can't beat the orcs by strength. You have to beat them by movement and defense. But it's just it's kind of a shocking thing. If you were one of the townspeople that was watching an elf fight these like five Numenorians, like that's a shocking event to happen in this city. Yeah, we do see a little bit of that as uh, Isildur gets brought to the town square by someone running past yelling, the elf is fighting the guards or whatever. And then Isildur's like, oh, the elf's fighting. I gotta see this. And there's a whole crowd of people. A little on the nose, yeah. but it worked. I wanted to see Isildur be the one to draw flesh. I wanted that to happen so badly, so badly. But there's there's got to be a bigger picture at play. I'm sure the writers and Jay Bayona have a whole other overarching plan to allow him to gain his credibility for what he is as a character. Oh, I wanted him to be the one to draw flesh so badly. But Isildur is but a mere stable sweep. He is no ah. lieutenant. He is. Just the the horse boy. Right. But his father, you know, was asking him how has he contributed to society. And that that immediately would have been an interesting take, you know? It would have. But he's got to start at the bottom as a stable sweep. And he's got to earn his way to being a hero of all Middle Earth. And we'll get to see his progression. So, you know. Did you any way you catch when Valendil and Isildur were talking? Valendil says, one day I hope you find something that you would be willing to sacrifice everything for. And he does. At the end of the series, he sacrifices everything for the uh. ring. The tone of the, the, the music turned at the end of that, that uh, statement. I did notice the music turned. That's good. Good, good call. Cat. This is what we do on Hobbit Hoopla. We make all these good catches. This is, this is what happens. <laughs> what <a catch. laughs> this is the kind of content you crave. We catch everything. Nothing gets by us. <laughs> Want to quickly correct something before we move on from this particular scene with the fight. I said that Galadriel was fighting five guys earlier, and something that's interesting here, one of the guards that was actually a part of the fight is feminine presenting, at least. I couldn't necessarily find the actor to get the correct pronouns, but if this is a girl's Numenorean soldier, that's a stark contrast from what we saw in fighting in the original trilogy. I mean, basically the whole prophecy was that no man can end what is going to happen. And of course, in the OT, we get no that man. scene, I am no man. But a whole shout out here, obviously, maybe may just an inclusion choice, or maybe this has Numenorean roots. We'll have to fact check that and get back to you. But cool to see female soldiers, soldiers of color, obviously, 
uh, it's it's definitely a, a a city, a prosperous city that is for freedom, except for the elf thing. But uh, maybe they, we used to have that, and we're working on that. But uh. no elves allowed. Although there is there is something interesting about their history with the elves, which I noticed a little bit in one of the previous episodes in Numenor, but I was more prominent here in this episode is the architecture of Numenor. We see a lot of elven architecture that obviously mm. goes back to the early days when this city was not a joint city between elves and men, but a city of men who respected elves and elves probably lived here for a while. Uh, and we see some of that in the architecture. So another difference between where Numenor came from and where they are currently especially with Farazhan and his anti-elf beliefs. Now that he is the person in power in Numenor after Muriel leaves. The last couple of scenes we get from each storyline in this episode, as we approach the, I don't know, 40, 45 minute mark, this is the first of a big expose dump. The, the latter half of the episode is absolutely stacked with knowledge that will equip us for the rest of these of this season, certainly, but the rest of the seasons to come, mm. for sure. Farazam is being a little sneaky sneak. I did really enjoy that scene. I, I feel like there's a lot more to come on it, but clearly he's up to no good and is just waiting for the right time to pull some sort of maneuver. And letting Kemen in on it makes me think that Kemen is going to be a more important character down the line. Right now, not Team Kemen, but it was a very cool scene right there where he's just trying to explain, oh, the trade routes, the value that this could bring. And I could be a whole part of it, a me, Farazone. So clearly he's working for himself here, not necessarily the people of Numenor. He, he's, he's in charge and he wants the people of Numenor to succeed. But at the same time, he's thinking for me, myself, and I. Well, it's interesting that he gives Kemen, first of all, when Kemen starts bringing up, why would you take orders from an elf? You realize that Farazon has so much power in this town, even in this small little building, he waves off a few of the townspeople. Yeah. He does a nod and another townsperson walks away. Like, he owns this city. This isn't Muriel's city, right? Like, he's the person at the top, in my opinion. But... He says, we'll save these men, we'll implant a king, and then we'll get all the ore and forest and trade and tribute. And that's that's the end all for this character. Chris, I kind of agree. Kemen, I think, is going to be a main character going into seasons two and three, where maybe he goes against his father in some way. I think he is maybe is a positive force in Numenor, while right now he's just kind of young and naive. I don't know. We'll see. I think, again, like I stated last episode, his cleverness is going to undermine Farazan's wisdom. I'm more on the better side for Farazan. Um, I know a lot of, like, all three of you are more on the negative aspect for Farazan. I'm I'm more in support of him. I think he is looking at the bigger picture for Numenor and he even says I go to war for Numenor. He's for the people. Oh, yeah. Whether his, you know, his direct intent is something that's more selfish still to be seen. But in terms of the things he's actually done, like he's going to war for the acquisition of resources for the betterment <laughs> of Numenor. And so for this reason, I don't know. It might be it might be of benefit to have him in charge. I, I like that. It, at the very least, I can give him that his motives are aligned right now, and he can kind of work both sides of it. He can send yeah. people to war, 
while also having power at home and then make the decisions as they come. I think my question is, is he actually going to take power from the queen? Who is his cousin? That's another thing we learned. Yeah, we did confirm that. I could see him looking to put his own perspective in terms of leading all of Numenor, but in terms of completely disregarding his family's approach and outlook for the entirety of the civilization, it's hard for me to buy that. I don't think it'll take much for him to overthrow his cousin. He only cares about helping the people of Middle-earth so that Numenor can benefit from it. And he'll probably find any excuse he can while Muriel is gone, helping the people of Middle-earth to say, hey, your queen regent cares more about people in a different continent than she does about us here on Numenor. And we, Numenorians, are the most important. We should care about ourselves. Your queen doesn't want what's best for you. I want what's best for you. I will take power and lead Numenor into the future. And that's where I think Kemen will come into play, because I don't think that's Farazan's initial perspective. I think that's Kemen's motive, I think that's Kemen's objective, and eventually he will wind the clock to make sure that that's what Farazan is relaying to the people. Kemen, more like Lemon. Hey, got him! <laughs> and when life gives you lemons... Boop, boop, boop. Make war. <laughs> no discredit to Leon Wadham, the actor for Kemen. I, I looked him up. I got you, man. I'm sorry. You Maybe you're just playing a plain character right now. Maybe you have a much bigger part to play. I'm excited to see. How'd you lose in a fight to Sildor, though? Come on. Because Sildor is a punk. <laughs> you didn't check the bottom of the boat for anybody else before you tried to blow it up? Like, what the hell? <laughs> There's another opportunity that a Sildor could have gained credibility or some validity for. He could have completely ratted out Kemen, and oh my god, how, how good would that have been for the people? Yeah, he probably could have, and maybe should have ratted out Kemen, but he did get some benefit from saving Kemen, dragging him out of the water. Saving Kemen was what allowed him to get a place in the Numenorean army, even if he is just the stable sweeper. Jamie, we have to at least bring up one thing, and that's, and that's Halbrand. Halbrand was everywhere in this episode. Yes. And for good reason. Facts. I have Facts. many theories about Halbrand, and I'm going back and forth and back and forth. Is he, is he Sauron? Is he just a king? Uh, how does he know how to do this, this task? And how did he brutalize all his Numenorians last time? He's a man of questions. What did he do back when he was in the Southlands? He has a discussion with Galadriel. Uh saying, I don't want to go back there. You don't know what I had to do to survive back then. And that's when we get a cut Whoa. to Waldre getting ready to kill his buddy. Is that her first Right after flashback? Halbrand says this. So Halbrand probably did some less than savory things. Did he swear fealty to Sauron? Is that what we're kind of implying? That's what it sounded like he was implying, that maybe he... It did sound that way. With the cutaway, Definitely. that's what it looked like, yeah. I thought that was a flashback at first. Because yeah. he was staring into the fire, and then yeah. it ended up being the torch of, of the people that left the watchtower. I thought it was a flashback. But I'm impressed that they used that scene to maybe give us more hints at what Halbrand actually did. And I think they did that on purpose. So there's that theory that's been going around on Reddit that he may be the dead king. But one thing that I thought actually provided some strength and gave it some legs was Farazan's quote, Soon we will save the low men of Middle-earth, lift them up, and give them the king they've long awaited. A king mm -hmm. who will forever be in our debt. And who's forever in debt? King of the oh. dead, yeah. I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. We see Hallbrand and Galadriel having this back and forth as to whether or not Hallbrand can go back to Middle-earth, whether he should go back to Middle-earth and unite his people, be the king that he needs to be. And then the last thing we see 
is Hallbrand go back, grab this necklace as he goes to meet with Muriel. And the next time we see him, he is getting ready to board the ship with everybody else and set sail to Middle-earth. In full armor. Yeah, that looked awesome. It actually got me very hype. That was a wonderful call to action by Galadriel, Jamie. In that scene between 100%. the two of them, Hallbrand has to earn his places to be king. I wanted to go to war for Galadriel <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> hey, maybe it's not too late. If you can probably sneak your way onto that boat, become a little stable hand if you want, and you can <laughs> fight alongside Galadriel. <laughs> if Isildur can get on that boat, then I can get on that boat. Anybody can get on that boat if Isildur can get on that boat. If Isildur is on that boat, is it because of what you mentioned earlier, or is it because of Valindiel allowed him, you know, punched him twice? Once in the gut and once in the face. I think it was that. Gotta be. The lieutenant gave him the, the spot, even if he is just the stable sweep. But he got himself on the boat, so he's there with all his good buddies, with Elendil, with Galadriel, who looks badasses, in her armor as they sail off to Middle-earth, where we will now sail off. Let's go to Linden, baby! I love Linden. I love Linden. We learn a lot of new interesting things from the elves in Linden. We have all sorts of new lore that is being created within this show. Lore that doesn't exist outside of the Rings of Power. I know that they've been doing a little bit of tweaking of the lore here and there, shifting the timelines, adding new characters, but they have added some very interesting new lore where Mithril comes from. Fact checker Jake will verify that at the start of the next episode. Hell yeah. <laughs> Fact checker Jake always <laughs> here. So we learn from Gilgalad that the Mithril was created in the midst of a fight between an elf and a Balrog of Morgoth, fighting over this tree, which they were both imbuing with their positive, beautiful energy from the elf and the evil energy from the Balrog. And then a lightning struck the tree and sent the power of the last Silmaril into the ore within the Misty Mountain. And that is where Mithril comes from. And that is why the elves are interested in Khazad-dûm because they need the mithril to prevent the blight that is overtaking the elves. You just expose dumped on us, just as the show did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did it in about Thank 40 you. seconds. It took them about 30 minutes, but I enjoyed every minute of it. This especially. Yeah, that, that blight. I mean, it's a pretty classic story, but certainly one that I'm ready to watch. The, the blight taking over the tree, the statecraft between Gil-galad, who, again, evil, Totally evil. Has to be evil. Honestly, new frontrunner for Sauron, I think. No. Gotta be. No, did did we all. consider that? Has that been considered? I'm sure Jake said that, but I don't <laughs> agree with it. <laughs> I, I, I may have said that once or twice. I'm I, I don't agree with that at all. I think Gil-Galad is just not a very... Uh, how do you say? He's an idiot. Wow, that's almost worse than calling him Sauron. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think he's an idiot, as we learned. Who would come up with that theory? <laughs> who, who would do that? Well, so let's talk about the dinner scene, because we absolutely have to. First of all, I wrote down literally, this is amazing. That's, that's my only note, because I didn't take any other notes, because the scene itself was just so great. Durin was absolutely fantastic. Owain Arthur just really stole the show for all of the scenes that he was in. but. The dinner scene was great, and the 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 part about the table, which ends up being a total lie, was so good. Just incredible. So good. It was a great joke, so. and and it served its purpose as a joke enough. But I also think, on a larger scale, it was a, a really tight band aid on the relationship between Elrond and Durin, which is a little shaky right now. Even still, it hasn't fully you know scabbed over. If I'm going to go with that metaphor, but. 
it was it was it was a great little bit you know to, to kind of de-escalate things after a very tense dinner scene what did you guys think of that i like the scene a lot i think anytime dura and you mentioned it chris anytime he is on screen even if it's 15 second shot 30 second shot he lightens the mood immediately like you just feel more joy in these scenes the more Prince Durin they can get on the screen, the better this show is going to be. When he wasn't in one of the last episodes, that crushed my rating because he's just <laughs> everything I want from a fantasy series. Yeah, he absolutely stole the show this episode. Like even just the final conversation he's having with Elrond talking about how the fate of the entire elven race is in Durin's hand. Say that again. And he peers over. <laughs> What a great actor. What a great character. I love the table scene too, though. I thought it was a lot of fun to see Durin sort of the flip, the counterpart in terms of we've seen Elrond, you know, in the Dwarven community. Now we're seeing ah, Durin yeah, in good the mirror. Elven community. And he's, he's holding his own. You know, the, the elves are very intellectually suave and, you know, they're good at playing mind games. And I, I love how he immediately throws the guilt of the fake rock <laughs> being necessary for burying his his own and i enjoyed this scene it, it's nice to see him actually on the counterpart and you know it's not an evil intent or a an, an intent that's trying to lessen that of the elves which i think is always elrond's and the elves objective is to sort of see how they can you know take advantage of the other races to benefit themselves it's it's selfish along those lines we do see elrond in this episode kind of going against that and being selfless to some extent where he is very conflicted about whether he should save his people and not betray his friends so and for me this is this is interesting too because last episode i said i have trust issues with Elrond, and this is toying with the audience pretty significantly to see him going back and forth he says you know he doesn't break his oath but he immediately shows lord Celebrimbor he has the mithril and that in of itself is breaking the oath that he swore on the stone well, and he also has a terrible choice, right? Like he's put in right terrible he, choice. It's it's saving your based on what Gilgalad says. It's saving his race of people, or this one oath of friendship, which clearly means a lot to him. Luckily, I'm glad that uh, my thought was when he did break that oath, and then he was going to tell Doran. I thought that would maybe splinter their relationship, but Doran is he has a love for his friend and immediately says okay well you're gonna have to get king durin on board i agree but elrond again plays the card of the fate of the elves is in your hand i don't think if he said that that reveal would have been as appealing to durin i think one of the coolest things about elrond's characters and something that was even more cemented in this scene it's cool to talk about how brand where he comes from where he's gonna go it's cool to talk about Fairzone and kemen there are these new characters but we obviously know that some of these characters are going to show up again in hundreds and hundreds of years. But Elrond is that character that most ties us to, from this series to, I think, the original trilogy. A, obviously because he's a big part of the original trilogy, but B, it shows you the decisions that he's had to make since very young. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's forced with these worldly, catastrophic situations. We know of two already. What else will we see in the future? But right now, you're right, he's going through this huge choice it's an impossible choice andrew and it's it's something where i'm excited to see where it turns out he's got Durin on his side already as we found out at the very end of the scene but elrond is is a pivotal character for this series and and i'm, I'm just impressed with where, what they're doing with his character 
because they're keeping that integrity from the original trilogy. I love that stoic Elrond that's seen so many things, and we're finally now seeing what are those things he has seen all these years. Do the three of you think that Celebrimbor, he's almost manipulating Elrond. Each episode, he brings up his father um, yes. and said, well, your father did this. It's up to you. Your, your father told me that you would be at the, the weight would be upon your shoulder. Continually, Celebrimbor is a very scheming type character in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of manipulation. I don't think you can bring the elves into this show or even discuss the elves of the show without discussing manipulation. Uh, and I think it's all of the high elves. I don't think, yeah. like, minus Galadriel, even maybe a little bit of Galadriel. She does manipulate I mean, she's, she's pretty manipulative, too. Yeah. yeah, she's pretty manipulative, too. So I don't think you can discuss the elves, at least in this show, without discussing manipulation. The elves are masters of passing the buck. Gil-Galad is passing the buck. Celebrimbor, come fix this situation that we have here. Oh, well, Celebrimbor, we're going to build a tower. Now we're going to make sure to get in Elrond's mind because he's going to fix this situation. Oh, now we got to pass that buck down to Durin. The stark contrast that you were talking about, Jake, is Galadriel's manipulative, but she's also willing to take on the fight. She's not passing the buck this time. In fact, she gave up passing the buck to go into the West and come back and fight this fight. So that's the stark character difference for her, and that's why she's not with the elves in all these scenes right now. She's different. That's a great catch, Chris, and I think that also ties to the reality. You know, what she's experienced in life has been far more humbling than what they've experienced. She's been to war. Her brother has been killed. I think that probably adds to some degree of, you know, her decision making, but you, you bring up a great point. You know, she is manipulative to a degree where it's beneficial for survival. I want to make a connection here that, Chris, you kind of brought up where in the original trilogy, you had elves. The only elves that really went to war were Galadriel's fighters that came to the aid of the humans in Helm's Deep. So once again... Elrond and, and some of the others pass the buck to the humans. It, it's their fight. Yeah. We're leaving Middle-earth. Yeah, but Galad exactly. But Galadriel's people went to battle for them. Great catch. Hell yeah. So, a lot of new exciting information coming from all the elves this episode. We confirmed one theory. How many theories did we confirm this episode? Just that Adar is not Sauron? What else? One sidebar theory. We did get a quick mention that Theo is indeed Bronwyn's son. I don't think that had been necessarily confirmed yet. I think it was heavily implied, but I think that's the first time we actually got, oh yeah, your son. Aron Deer says everything that you fought for, these people worked a generation to bring back virtue. Your son and his sons after him. So that's a confirmation from Aron Deer to Bronwyn. Did we know that? You guys are giving me some faces. We knew that Theo was Bronwyn's son. The theory was, I is thought... Theo Aron Deer's son? I, I thought it was still up to discussion that it could be a little brother. That may put that to rest. If he says your son, yes. no, no, I, I don't think so at all. That, that I, may I, put it to rest. I, that may put it I to rest. I actually think that that was a great father-son moment as they're <laughs> at the, the bow and arrow. He's teaching him how well. to shoot more accurately. Guess what? You guys need to come back together as father and son. Okay. Let's see your ears, Theo. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta see, see the, ears. the ears. Show them. Hashtag. Show us those ears. We got to see Bronwyn's ears. We got to see Theo's ears. One of them is a, is a half-elf, for sure. <laughs> You're right, Andy, though. It makes us circle the drain because if, the, if Jamie is right about that one scene that we can't seem to put to bed here on this episode, if that was an act that Bronwyn and Arendir are putting on, 
why did he say your son? Maybe it is our son, but he can't say that because they're acting. So a lot in the air right now. We'll just have to wait till the next episode. Oh, that could be. That could be. Also, so. the people in the South Ends don't want a half elf in their midst. They hate the elves, so they're <laughs> protecting him. They hate the elves for now. Waldrig would hate Theo if Theo was a half elf. Perhaps that you know, alludes to the fact that maybe Theo has a higher intellect and knows not to follow Waldrig into ominous lands of Morgoth. Yeah, or he was Morgoth just raised by a wonderful mother. Bronwyn, who is obviously a great, strong person, and having a great mother will make you a better person. And having an elf for a father doesn't help. Doesn't hurt either. Doesn't help. (laughs) You sound like the people of the Southlands. Get that elf jeans out of here. (laughs) Great episode. Looking forward to episode six next week. Let's do some real quick final thoughts and our tradition of grading the episode on a scale of 1 to 111 hooplas. Let's start this week with Andy. Thanks, Jamie. You know, I really do think this was a wonderful episode. I didn't enjoy it as much as last week's episode. What I really did think was fun was the traveling caravan scenes being able to really travel across Middle-earth and follow the map transitions that Chris loves as well. Once again, Doran and Elrond's scenes are full of so much heart, and I would like them to maybe focus on those a little bit further in the upcoming episodes here. I'm going to drop it down to about a 95 out of 111 hooplas. Hoopla! Hoopla indeed! Jake, what do you think about this episode? I felt that this added so much to the storyline, and now we're actually going to the part you know, where Numenor is now sending out people and we end in the super climactic scene with booming epic music by Bear McCreary. I thought initially going into this discussion, I actually was going to lower this episode, but you reminded me how the Hobbit's song is a very important element of their character. I originally was not on board with the song, but you guys made me a believer. And so as a result of that... Call to me, call to me, far away. That's beautiful. Are you a Harfoot too? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I thought Wayne Chiep did a great job directing this episode. I'm definitely excited now that we have the Numenorians going to the Southlands, crossing the Sundering Seas. Um, and hopefully they don't see the worm. And that's my and take. They only have three ships anyways. <laughs> like, what are they going to do to that orc army? <laughs> they'll do enough <laughs> great point and the worm takes out two ships all they need is the one and they'll save the day uh all right so chris you i get the sense from you that this is your favorite episode so far are we gonna get a high rating on this episode from you my friend you my friend know me well and you've had me pegged for the majority of our podcast recording here today yeah this is my highest rated episode so far i'm gonna talk about why and then i'll give you the number the gang's all here. I mean, this was our first episode where we had everyone in their storylines bouncing back and forth. The springboard is finally loaded and cocked and ready to explode for the back half of the season. This is by far my favorite episode. Some of the acting was just incredible. Settings, pieces, and graphics and all that kind of took a backseat this episode because finally story is taking over, and that's what I want most of all. I looked down at one point, these relationships are so good and so deeply rooted already in such a short time that the money, again, we keep talking about the money they're putting to this, but it's more than that now. These characters are very real, their stories are very real, and I'm just so excited about everything to come. 90. This one break the 90 barrier for me. This was a fantastic episode. (laughs) I finally get to feel like this episode deserves a, a 90 rating. 
out of 111 hoopla's it, it was a, a it's a springboard episode still we didn't get the battle between the humans and orcs which i'm sure is coming we didn't really understand the full force of adar and and what he's going to offer if any sort of swearing fealty were to come i don't think that's going to happen i think that was a total lie but the players are set the pieces are ready and this back half of the season's really exciting this was the best episode yet excellent i love to hear it I, I'm going to agree with Andy on this one, that I preferred episode four just slightly. I think they're both fantastic episodes, but I'm going to drop my rating down to a 100 out of 111 hooplas. I am very excited about all the stuff that we learned in Linden. I wasn't sure if I was going to be down for new lore being created for the show that's not part of mm. the official Tolkien canon, but after this new insight into where the Silmaril created the Mithril, you know what? I'm in. I'm excited for every storyline. Great episode. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for joining us. As we do every week, our friend Chris has a special segment for us. What do you got for us this week, buddy? There's some good news in this world, Mr. Frodo. We're going to jump from high fantasy over to the sci-fi realm for just a moment. Happy shout out to Halo 3. 15 years ago on this day, it was released and completely changed the gaming world. Not necessarily, you know, good news content creator or anything, but I know personally I have a lot of memories with that game. And I know a couple of us on the podcast have definitely dipped our toes into that sci-fi universe before. So shout out across the aisle to our sci-fi friends over there in that universe. And happy birthday to Halo 3. Bringing us back to the glory days. Me and you, Chris, playing Halo in the basement. Are you talking about the glory, the glory days, the Paramount Plus TV show? I love that. (laughs) Halo hoopla coming at you soon. Now let's see if we can get that sweet Halo sponsorship for the next episode of the podcast. (laughs) Brought to you by Bungie. (laughs) Excellent. Well, wonderful. Again, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening. Go ahead, like, subscribe, give us a five star rating. Uh, We're probably going to put out a little poll on our Spotify for this episode. So. Check us out on Spotify, answer the poll, and as we end every episode of Hobbit Hoopla, I'll throw it to my friend Andy for the moment of highest hoopla. Owley's beard! Enough with the quail sauce. Give me the meat and give it to me or off. <laughs> Call to me, call to me, lands far away. Something will wander this wandering day.